Another thing that I've learned through, you know, starting to become blind is I didn't know the life that I was going to live. I'm grieving this thing that I couldn't have even known. Nobody knows what's going to happen. We have hopes and dreams and stuff, but you, but nobody knows. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we're going on an unusual trip. We'll be temporarily accompanying two men, Mark Arelli and Andrew Leland, on their separate journeys to the same destination. Both are moving gradually from the world of sight to one of blindness. Musician and songwriter Mark Arelli was performing in 2020 when he looked down at his guitar and couldn't see his fingers on the frets. A subsequent diagnosis of RP, retinitis pigmentosa, terrified him. He learned he had a degenerative condition with an uncertain timeline, but one which would eventually lead to blindness. Understandably, he was filled with lots of questions. Would his diminished eyesight decrease his creative insight? How was he supposed to write and sing his truth if he could no longer observe the world around him? These questions, along with his drive to regain his creative agencies, formed the basis for his album, Lay Your Darkness Down. Andrew Leland is a writer and audio producer who recently published The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, which describes his position now suspended in the liminal state of the soon-to-be blind. Midway through his life with RP, Andrew now sees the world as if through a narrow tube. Soon, but he doesn't know when, he will lose his sight. Welcome to you both. Great Thank to be you. here. So Andrew, let's start with you. Your book takes us on an expansive exploration of the state of blindness. Maybe we should start first with the terminology. The historical use of the word blind, vision, have got all sorts of implications. So perhaps you could talk just a little bit about that. Yeah. A lot of times when people see my cane or, you know, know that I have a visual impairment or that I'm blind or whichever, you know, phrase you want to use, they'll say, you know, an innocuous phrase like, oh, do you see what I mean? Or I'll see you later and then catch themselves and be very apologetic and be like, I mean, I will be in a in a physical room setting with you. <laughs> At a future, uh, you know, and they're just, they, they get all caught up on it. And Helen Keller actually has a really wonderful passage about this in one of her books. And basically her point, I think, still stands, which she, and she, you know, being like a scholar of, you know, she, I mean, she studied Latin and she, she's, she, I think she, she points to the word visit, which the Latin root visitare, I think has visual implications. But, but the point is that like, if you, if you tried to speak at all, even setting aside obviously visual words like uh, speculation or enlightenment or envision or you know and so on, you're just not going to be able to communicate. And I I've hung out with a lot of blind people, you know, through the course of writing this book, and they'll say things like, "Oh, let me see that," and then you know you'll hand it to them and they'll check it out and they've seen it. You know, I mean, and so I think the in in a way like there's a good intention of wanting to be sensitive, right, and say. I mean, you know, I, I won't see you later or you'll see, you know, but but I think the reality is that the generous move actually is to just include blind people in visual language. And the damaging relationship to language comes when you use blindness as 
a synonym for ignorance. And that is the actual, that's the toxic ingredient there. It's when you say, you know, you'd have to be blind not to see that, you know, because then you're really taking a literal condition of blindness and equating it with ignorance. And that wouldn't be a problem if there weren't such a profound stigma and a really durable and omnipresent present day attitude towards blindness and blind people as deficient and as uh, lesser than and as you know intellectually diminished um, and and sort of incapable in a whole host of ways. And so that's my sort of gloss on the language question. In some ways, it reflects to me, again, what you're saying on a larger scale, which is blindness, uh, often in the Bible or in ancient times, was yeah. this to inflict blindness on someone was this big deal, morally, metaphysically, you know, uh, and I just wondered, you know, it's it's rarely you're suddenly giving someone the gift of being blind. I don't think I ever remember seeing that. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. One of the few positive instances that you might point to would be like in 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 law, right? Like blind justice. But even that is problematic. And I, I have a I have a chapter in the book called Lady Justice. Uh, you know, who is the classical figure of the woman wearing um, the blindfold and holding the scales? Uh, but it's true. It is as with most disabilities, a overwhelmingly stigmatized and negative symbol in, in culture, which does nothing to erase the reality of the the real joy and normalcy that many disabled people live with every day. So just because it is so deep in the language does not justify that presentation. So you're sort of straddling two worlds right now, both of you, but initially you kind of resist the distinctive markers of blindness, you know, your cane. You've got a very ambivalent relationship with that. Um, you actually, I'm going to quote now, you say, I live in a weird shadowy landscape between blindness and sight, which has forced a reckoning to try and let go of my desperate desire for resolution. I thought that that was a huge statement. How do you navigate that, this in-between? Yeah, I mean, I think I surprised myself by finishing the book and realizing that that was in some ways, the landing point, which is to say, you know, a, a lot of the journey of of writing the book and of and of becoming blind and, and and trying to understand it, I thought more had to do with accepting blindness. But in a way, the way that I've begun to accept blindness is actually to accept the ambiguity of not having lost all of my vision. And one of the biggest obstacles to accepting blindness has been my relationship with my remaining sight. And we were talking a little bit before we started about, you know, what advice one would give to somebody who's losing their sight. One of the hardest things about RP and beginning on the journey is like, you need to learn how to use these tools before you really need them. And then it sneaks up on you and then you need them. And so the idea of like using a cane when you can still see that the light has changed feels paradoxical. And I'm just filled with this imposter syndrome, but actually it's crucial to your survival, I think, to to sort of get a head start on that stuff. And it, and, it, and it really forces one to say, you know what? Yeah, I can still see when the light changes, but also this cane is a crucial tool for me, despite the fact that people on the street are looking at you like you're a fraud. And so that's, that's the beginning of an answer to that question. So that's a very good point to jump over to Mark, because just where you are now, I imagine there are some changes that have already occurred because you have to travel as a musician. You have to get yourself in and out of ill-lit locations <laughs> to yeah. sing. So how has that been? Well, I am a little bit earlier 
in my journey with this, but reading his book has been so helpful in terms of framing blindness uh, as um, identifying the agency you have as you go blind, right? Like it's not just even just the word like going blind like he, in his book he has this great part about someone saying that they talk about becoming blind you know it's this thing that you become rather than this place that you go that you can't return from and that's all just been so helpful for me initially it was very it was very disorienting because i would say that at least when i was diagnosed my daytime vision with my glasses on was pretty good the problem for me is that uh, the situations or the context in which I am kind of functionally blind, those are like 80% of my working conditions, right? Dark backstages, bright lights in your face, you know, high contrast between the darkness of the audience and the brightness of the stage lights coming out of the venue at midnight when it's dark, you know, so much of my work is has to happen in this context where it it's really hard and becoming harder and so i've just had to really focus on trying to give myself a little grace and a little forgiveness and also just stay laser focused on solutions and little problem solving techniques that i can adopt anything that helps even a little bit you know if i can see five percent better by doing X, then I do that every time, you know? And um, I know my vision is going to change, but I just want to stay a vital working musician. So anything that I can do to kind of make, you know, that transition uh, work, I'm, I'm, going to do, I'm going to do it. So both of you um, are still extremely involved in the line of work that you are going to stay in. So we were just talking before about this. I think it's very interesting how different, just in the short time that Andrew's been dealing with this, how the technology has assisted the things, the tasks, the problem solving, the getting things done so much easier than, you know, one, well, I'll let you say what you think, Andrew. Yeah. You know, my perspective is different than obviously somebody who grew up blind because you know, not only am I still in the realm of low vision, but you know, I I've I've started to learn all this stuff in the in the era of omnipresent screen readers and uh, access technology being head and shoulders above what it was. I I interviewed a woman, uh, a blind writer named Deborah Kent Stein, uh, who lives in Chicago. Uh, she talked about how she would, in order to read as a little girl, she would have to send away to the um, Library of Congress's Braille library, you know, and, and and Braille is a much bigger format than print. So like, you know, the, the classic example is like Harry Potter, you know, obviously Harry Potter hadn't been written in her time, but like, you know, you can buy a paperback of Harry Potter. That's what, like three, three or 400 pages, but the, the same book in Braille would be in like four or five volumes. You know, it, it's like six phone books stacked on your, on your desk. Um, you know, so they would only send one volume at a time and then she would send them back and, you know, it would be like waiting for this, um, you know, this, this, this event when, when the mail would come. And then when she finally got access to Bookshare, which is this, um, the original before Spotify, there was this thing called Napster, which basically it was like a, like a, like a file sharing service for blind bookworms. So blind people would scan books. And then this was the beginning of OCR, right? Where you would 
the invention of the flatbed scanner and then the you know Google Books if you think of it like you know you scan a book of of page of print but then the computer can recognize the print and then turn it into digital text this was transformative for blind people and so then bookshare you suddenly had eventually millions of titles including brand new scholarly books and 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 this this uh, writer Deborah would t- told me that once she got access to that, she would download dozens and dozens of titles at a time, just in case, like just for later. And the way she talked about it, it was like somebody who grew up in the depression, you know, like hoarding cans of beans, even though like they could have enough money to just go to the supermarket whenever they want. But like, and, and I, when I said that to her, she was like, absolutely. Like I grew up in the book famine. So, you know, stories like that really do make me appreciate Bookshare, that service, because, you know, even to this day, like there was a book I was interested in that a print book that I saw in my house today. And I, I spent a little time like straining to look at it, but it's just not worth it. You know, like if I actually wanted to read that book, I'm going to download it from Bookshare. So I can still see print, but it's like, I compare it sometimes, not that I've had this experience, but like, you know, there, there are plenty of wheelchair users who can take steps if they, if they can walk, if they have to, but it's like the wheelchair is just infinitely better option for so many situations. And and that, it's like that for me in print. So I, I don't know how I would have written my book without being able to just download dozens and dozens of books and listen to them and or blow the text up gigantic and invert the colors and, and do all the incredible uh, maneuvers. You know, and there, and there is a whole world that, Mark, I don't know if you've dipped your toes into yet, but I know lots of blind sound engineers and sound mixers and audio editors. And, and a lot of that sound editing technology is also is pretty accessible. With But I, I also have to throw an asterisk on here because I think people ask that question and I say this and it sounds like this utopia, but it's actually a huge problem of digital accessibility because so much of the world has become digital that's opened up these new pastures for blind people, but also it creates tremendous barriers. You know, one quick example is software is constantly being updated. So I, you know, I saw today somebody say like, Hey, is anybody else having this problem? Like the Amazon app used to work perfectly with me and my screen reader, you know, I could swipe around and hear everything, but I think they didn't update and now it doesn't work. And that's just a constant experience of the blind person is like, you get some configuration of, of software, you know, it's works and then an update happens. And you know, this is true of any technology user, but when you're an edge case, when you're this sort of minority among users, it's hugely exaggerated. It's far from a utopia. You're listening to Cambridge Forum's Out of Sight, which navigates the liminal world of in-between with two men who are gradually losing their sight. One, a musician and songwriter, Mark Arelli, and two, Andrew Leland, author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Mark, you said, uh, quote, certain insights are only available because of the slow, gradual loss of vision. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that, recalibrating your internal compass, I guess? I think the biggest insight that I've gained thus far uh, comes from the fact that where I am with RP right now, it's mainly an invisible disability. So I'm not using a cane yet. I'm cane curious, I would say, right now, (laughs) and getting more curious by the day. But I don't quote unquote look blind to the average person. A lot of times people assume things, you know, maybe I might have a problem with. I also realize that I'm carrying this thing that they can't see. And there's, there's got to be millions of other people, basically everybody carrying things that I can't see. They're, you know, not just vision stuff, but their their own things. And so as an artist and as a songwriter, you know, compassion and empathy is actually one of the biggest tools and one, one of the most effective tools in my toolkit, not not just 
uh, visual observation, but compassion and empathy are as big, if not bigger. And so having this invisible disability has led me to just be way more cognizant of the fact that though everyone, though someone might quote unquote look normal, they're likely carrying something or struggling to carry something. And that might be, you know, the reason that they're acting a, a certain way that seems a little bit strange or, or vexing or frustrating. Mm. So, you know, for me, that's been one of the biggest insights that uh, I just have to be a little gentler with myself. And if I'm going to extend that kind of, you know, mindset to myself, there's nothing to lose from extending it to other people. And there's a lot to gain. So this is a bit of a wide curve question here. I was just thinking about one would have thought naively that if you are losing one sense, that some of your other senses might be more heightened. Maybe if you've been blind since birth, it's different, but they certainly haven't become heightened in the last few years for me. Uh, I think that's a bit of a, of a misconception, uh, though I, I can't speak for certain on that. Andrew's done a lot more research, I think. My sense is that I agree. It's a, I think it's a misconception. I think, um, you know, certainly like if, if you and I took a hearing test, Mary, I, I don't think I'm going to perform better on the hearing test by virtue of my visual impairment. You know, like uh, your ear functioning does not increase. I think what does increase is your relationship with the sensors. It's not even that it increases, but it changes. And, you know, I, I love this passage in a book uh, written by a blind academic uh, where he talks about waiting for a cab on the corner with a bunch of his friends who are sighted. And, you know, he hears the cab first. It's not because his hearing is better. It's because like they're all staring at their phones and not paying attention and he's listening more, you know? And I, so I think that, I think that paying dynamic. Something. Yeah. 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 That's, that's such an important point. I mean, I get this all the time in music, like, oh, doesn't vinyl sound nice and warm and, uh, or doesn't, don't CDs sound really, you know, crisp and high fidelity. And it's like, it all sounds great. And the best music is the music you're really listening to, you know? Mm -hmm. If you just got stuff on in the background, it doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound as good as if you're focused and really savoring it. And it's the same with food. If you're just eating to, to not be hungry anymore, it doesn't taste as good no matter what it is. There's a book called Touching the Rock by a Australian theologian, John Hull, who went blind in middle age. And it's a classic in the canon of, of blind memoirs. But it's also like a book that I would never recommend somebody who's going blind read because, you know, being what it is, which is this this audio diary right in the like immediate aftermath of his vision loss, right, you know, right in the middle of his life, it's it's full of this grief that, you know, say what you want about the, you know, positive aspects of disability that that are inarguable and that do exist, you know, th there's always going to be a grief if you lose something mm -hmm. after having had it and relying on it. But he has this passage where he talks about sex and food in, in, a, in a kind of connected way where he, he says, you know, I'm sitting at dinner and this is after he's gone blind and somebody says like the waiter's going around with the potatoes and he's like, what does that even mean to me? Like potatoes, like, you know, inspiring desire of the visual impact of the, you know, and it's the same thing with sex, he writes, you know, like he feels this sort of pang the same way one would with hunger, but like absent that, like I think he, the phrase he uses, like the full bodied impact, you know, of, of the sight of a woman, you know, and I quoted that very kind of dutifully in an early draft of my book, uh, talking about like, okay, so, you know, this is something that I have to look forward to, right? Like, 
I'm not going to enjoy food or or sex anymore because I won't have that. And I, a couple of blind friends read the draft and they were like, I don't know if, you know, what our cussing policy is on Cambridge forum, but in effect they said poppycock bosh, <laughs> you know, like I enjoy food and sex and like, you know, I, and, and to their point, you know, they, they were like, that is a memoir of his grief. And like, yeah, like you're going to feel that way in the throes of the grief, but you get over the grief and you learn to adapt. And part of the adaptation is a kind of restructuring of your modalities, right? Which is to say like, you can access pleasure through different modalities. And so that's that's a long-term process, but it is a process that is real and can happen. Yeah. That whole concept of grief and how it relates to uh, where you are on, on the your journey with a particular disability it has been something that I've been really thinking a lot because that was the dominant uh, emotion when I first, uh, in the wake of my diagnosis, you know, I was diagnosed during the pandemic, I had to go into the hospital alone. It's like seven hours of testing, a lot of which is in like a darkened room and where you're just alone. And then I had to be told alone uh, with just my doctor. And then we called my wife who, you know, wasn't in the same room. You know, it was a, it was a lot and the grief was immediate and overwhelming. And I think the dominant reaction was grieving this this life that that we thought we were going to live you know my wife and i as andrew said you you get over that or you get you don't get over it you get through it you learn how to carry it it becomes just part of who you are in, in a way but what another thing that i've that i've learned through you know starting to become blind is i didn't know the life that I was going to live. I'm grieving this thing that I couldn't have even known. And not only can I have not known it, nobody knows what's going to happen the rest of today or tomorrow or, you know, five, 10 years out. We don't know. We, we plan, <laughs> we have hopes and dreams and stuff, but you, but nobody knows. And so here I was grieving this thing that I, that this, it was kind of like false hope, I think, that I was clinging to, you know, and it's, it's hard when, when you realize that, but it had this kind of beneficial effect of just really making me think about the, the present and trying to be a little bit more mindful. I don't always succeed. I, I, in fact, I rarely succeed. I'm always trying and I, I rarely succeed. But, you know, that, grief of of the life that I thought I was going to live I do feel like I have learned how to carry that uh, as just part of of who I am but really none of us none of us know that I see yeah. you're sitting with your guitar but <laughs> might of be them, a good yes. time to have a song from you you were going to play I think by degrees yeah and you wrote it before you had your diagnosis in 2018, right? I mean, I wrote this song in response to uh, the intense sorrow uh, from the epidemic of gun violence uh, in the United States and how numb I was starting to feel to it and um, how I didn't want to feel that way. And how did I get, how did it get this way? So, you know, I start the song with this wish of, not having to view all this this uh, pain and hatred and, and sorrow in the world. And at the time, the best thing that I could come up with was when I take a look around me, sometimes I wish I was blind. 
now I have to sing the song every night. And I do not wish that I was blind at all. But, you know, the notion of resisting getting used to things that kind of degrade in small increments, you know, when it comes to gun violence or American democracy or, or what have you, I do think that there is real value in pushing back. And yet, ironically, now I found myself having to face this, you know, loss, uh, this degradation that happens in small increments by degrees every day with my vision. And I'm actually trying to accept that and be at peace with that um, kind of slow motion volatility. And so, you know, this song really has changed uh, or taken on added layers of, of meaning for me. So, um, so I'll play it for you now. This is, this is called By Degrees. When I take a look around me Sometimes I wish I was blind Feels like something sacred's dying one headline at a time And I can't tear myself away No, I just stare in disbelief You can learn to live with anything When it happens by degrees And I've seen every head bowed down As if lost in private prayer I've seen the phones in every hand Seen the long and vacant stares Of souls gone numb Thumbing through each ceaseless change in fear You can learn to live with anything When it happens by degrees I've seen pundits shouting back and forth Across some great divide Against a map of red and blue Points of view so cut and dried But when you look into the mirror What color country do you see? Where you can learn to live with anything When it happens by degree I've seen the flags at half-staff As a nation mourned and moaned I've seen the stars and bars of flying proud Above the state house dome For the Charleston nine we sing I once was blind but now I see We can learn to live with anything When it happens by degree And I've seen little hands on little shoulders Children in a line I've seen them led away from school As the shots rang out inside And I thought something has to change But somehow it's become routine We can learn to live with anything When it happens by degree
Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Loyal Institute, Mass Cultural Council, the Cambridge Community Foundation, and you good people. So you can go to the website, cambridgeforum.org, where you can sign up for a free newsletter. Thanks for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon. I've seen sadness seep into my heart Each day just a little more This darkness growing so familiar I can't recall what came before My children's faces filled with questions Looking up expectantly And I don't know what to tell them No, I can't bring myself to tell them that you can learn to live with anything When it happens by degrees 